Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Dr. Lindsay Piegza now. She's chief economist for Stiefel Financial. And we're, we'll start off, Lindsay, with your reaction to the uh, Fed discussion and, 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 the, and the release that we had yesterday. I want to kick it off with the dots because clearly that's what the market paid the most attention to. But um, Jerome Powell said, take this with a grain of salt. This isn't it's not not like a plan. We haven't discussed this and we're moving in that direction. Um, what do you think about the dot plot? Well, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, we saw actually a, a number of revisions to the Fed's forecast. Not only did they uh, expedite the potential pathway for higher rates, but they also increased their expectation for inflation and growth. And at the same time, they left their view of the labor market pretty much unchanged. So their expectation for being able to raise rates faster is really predicated not on fears of inflation, but the fact that the recovery is picking up momentum, that it's it's recovering at a faster than expected pace. So I thought this was a pretty positive projection from the Fed. And, you know, on the jobs front, on the labor front, Lindsay, you know, the data over the last couple of months has been a little bit disappointing in terms of the folks getting back to work. How do you view that? How do you think the Fed's viewing that? Is this kind of a little bit of an aberration that things will pick up? That seems to be what they're suggesting. Well, I think the Fed was very clear in acknowledging the recent improvements that we've seen in the economy. But at the same time, I think the chairman was tempering the market's expectations to say, wait a minute, we're not entirely out of the woods quite yet. Yes, we've taken big steps in the right direction, but we still have millions of Americans that have yet to return to the labor market. So there's further progress that needs to be achieved before we can talk about reaching that pre-crisis vitality. So I think the Fed was very careful to walk this delicate line of, yes, applauding the improvements, but also justifying the need for further accommodation going forward. What do you think the 10-year yield means at 151.76, a real yield at, I think, negative seven basis points? Does that change significantly through year-end? I think this says that the market is buying into the Fed's inflation dismissal rhetoric, that the market is really buying into the notion that these these recent price pressures will prove temporary. And going into the end of the year in early 2022, we'll start to see inflation come back down in line with the Fed's 2% target. So I, I think from here, the market is signaling that a peak in inflation has already been priced in. And in fact, we could continue to see some downward pressure on the longer end of the curve as we do start to see that uh, reduced price pressures come to fruition or, or translate into the data. So, Lindsay, what's your sense of timing here as we think about tapering is going to be the first uh, you know, act that we will get from this Federal Reserve? How are you thinking about that and from a timing perspective? Well, I think the Fed's been pretty clear that they're going to give the market ample notice in terms of that discussion. And once the discussion begins, they're going to again give the market ample notice before a formal announcement is made. So if we anticipate that the discussion really begins around that August-September timeframe, 
it's likely that by the end of the year at that December meeting, the Fed initiates a formal announcement that taper will begin, making the actual process of drawing down those purchases a 2022 event. And I do think this is going to be a very deliberate, very slow, very transparent process over six, 12, maybe even 18 months period, pushing out that first rate increase well into 2023, which, again, lines up with what we saw in terms of the latest dot plot with the vast majority of Fed officials anticipating at least one rate hike by the end of 2023. What do you think about the housing market, Lindsay? David Rosenberg, obviously he's a bear, um, but he says we're in a bubble and it's not hard to understand why. Well, I I do think that the housing market uh, strength is very different from what we saw going into the 07-08 recession. This time around, it's not being driven by speculative demand or purchases of vacation homes or second homes. This is a shift, a structural shift in uh, demand for homes, particularly outside of the urban centers. Now, some of the variables, some of the factors are COVID-related, but some are not. We see an entire generation of millennials finally deciding to jump into the housing market. And so there is some structural demand that I do think will continue to support this type of growth going forward. Uh, so I, I think it's a little bit premature to say that this is a bubble. Um, I, I do think this is more of a longstanding structural support that we'll see in terms of the housing market. All right, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective here. Lindsay Piegza. Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial joining us on the phone from Chicago. And I guess if you're in the market for buying a home, Matt, it might be higher prices for longer. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> that hurts to hear. But the good news is if you're in the market for selling a home, yes. you're going to probably get a higher price. And I see that Porsche is now putting out the new 911-992 in GT3 form. Sure. So I would say anyone who's selling a home right now, seriously consider buying this 911. All right. That's, you heard it here first. Let's get over now to Ian Bellina. He is the founder and CEO at Token Metrics. He's been involved in the crypto space for uh, three, four human years, which is <laughs> like 20 crypto years. He can speak to us on what he's seen uh, in terms of well, let's talk about Bitcoin to, to start with, Ian. Um, I know there are 5,468 other coins out there, but you think Bitcoin is widely considered still the most important and um, expected to be still the most important cryptocurrency in the next decade? Oh, wow. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be, to be on. So Bitcoin right now is the most important cryptocurrency in the market. Um, it's basically a proxy for the whole market. But we actually take a contrarian viewpoint on this. We believe in the future, in the next 10 years, the long tail of crypto will, will win out over Bitcoin. Bitcoin will have the first mover advantage. However, if you see all the growth happening in the space, it's happening in, in other blockchains. For example, in DeFi. Right now, DeFi has over $120 billion in total value. And over 75% of that is happening on Ethereum. So while Bitcoin was first, and it's definitely the champion of the space, there's lots of innovation happening all over the space. Ian, I'd love to get your view on this. One of the issues, or one of the, I guess, the selling points, if you will, or one of the attributes of Bitcoin was its uh, anonymity. Yeah, it can't be traced. But yet we've seen in some of the ransomware cases. 
Yes. No, <laughs> it, Bitcoin has never was never thought to be anonymous. We we've always known that it is on a public ledger and can be traced by everyone in the world. Well, that was see that was news to me at least, I guess. And you know, so talk to us about what happened with some of those ransomware and and the ability of authorities to kind of trace it and get it back. Yeah, well, I mean that's one of the miscommunications when it comes to crypto and Bitcoin. People think Bitcoin is completely anonymous. Now, early on in the early days, yes, there was, dark, there was the dark web, Silk Road, and all those nefarious actors were using Bitcoin for, or crypto in general for bad means. However, the blockchain has been one of the best innovations in the last 20 years. So now regulators and the, the police and FBI are able to work and transact and track different transactions on the blockchain. The companies out there like Chain, chain Analysis that help regulators do just that, right? So if people think they can hide from uh, Bitcoin and blockchain transactions, that's completely false. If anything, it makes it easier to catch somebody. Yeah, I always, uh, whenever I'm talking to a money launderer or a drug dealer, <laughs> I always say, stick to cash, buddy, because everyone <laughs> in the world can see the blockchain. It's all laid out in the open for you on the web. And I guess some people have strategies of breaking up um, their payments into tiny little pieces and sending it out to a million different wallets to try and confuse the feds. But look, anybody with a little time on his or her hands uh, or their hands can can uh, yeah. go out there and, and chase everything. I want to talk a little bit more about DeFi, you know, because blockchain has become so ubiquitous. And I guess the community has now accepted that it needs uh, more stringent regulation or at least um, clarification on regulation. Is DeFi different in that it's more kind of libertarian still in, in its heart? Uh, I would say yes, right? Uh, not all the way, but definitely yes. So DeFi essentially is taking services that were typically done by the banking industry and Wall Street, and it's letting people now be able to participate in that globally without having any middleman, without, without having to ask for permission from anybody. So take different services such as lending, savings, uh, investing. Now anybody globally can participate in this new economy, in this, in this new world of open finance, so to me, this is breaking down barriers. This is breaking down borders, and it's it's becoming more inclusive. Is there a sense, um, Ian, that in the crypto space broadly defined, that regulation, government regulation, is coming, uh, and it's something that this industry needs to be ready for? Uh, yes, I believe so. I think for crypto assets to go mainstream, they definitely do need more regulation. Uh, for example, today. Uh, the Danex uh, ETF was pushed back by the SEC. And, for example, if the ETF does get approved, that will be huge for both retail and institutional adoption. So if crypto ever hopes to go mainstream, uh, in a way it kind of already is, but to fully go mainstream and, ha and gain global adoption, it does need to have regulation and compliance where all, re all regulators will be happy with it. Ian, you went from uh, IBM as a technical sales engineer and open source um, analytics sales executive into um, dealing with cloud, SAA, software as a service, um, and then into and then you and then you started Token Matrix, and you have uh, apparently kind of a Moneyball approach to the way you invest in crypto. Yeah. What about um, analysis? Could you give us a price target, for example, on Bitcoin year end? Oh, wow. 
Well, I mean, so at Tokenetics, we use machine learning and data and analytics to, to help our customers make money in crypto, or rather also prevent from losing money. Uh, Prediction-wise, our predictions only go out for about a month or so, but we are pretty optimistic in Bitcoin and crypto this year. Um, I'm optimistic all the way until about Q3, and then Q4 typically historically has not been a good month, right. uh, except for maybe December during Christmas season, going back to the last, last market cycle back in 2017. Uh, right now, Bitcoin is at 40K. We're kind of in limbo territory for right. the next month or so. Uh, we do expect summer, uh, somewhere between July and August and September, for Bitcoin and Ethereum to go up, because right. Ethereum is going to have an upgrade. Uh, but for yep. Bitcoin... I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin went to 100K uh, okay. this year. All right, Ian, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Fascinating. Ian Bellina, founder and CEO of Token Metric. All right, so yesterday we had the Fed coming in and you know, a little bit of a hawkish view here as it relates to interest rates. And we want to get a sense of what that means for the banks because the banks have had such a good trade here uh, recently and it's been such a good place. So if you want to talk banks, Matt, there's only one person to chat with, and that's Mike Mayo, senior banking analyst for Wells Fargo Securities. Mike, what was your takeaway for the banks that you cover as it relates to what looks to be, you know, uh, we're going to have some interest rates going up by you know, in 2023. What does that mean for your call on the banks? Well, Matt, uh, we have several 1970s classics. We had disco, leisure suits, mood rings, and inflation. And I thought those were all gone. But right up front in the four-page Fed press release, they had the three key words, inflation has risen. And that, <laughs> as you said, now now the Fed is saying two interest rate increases sooner than people had expected. Um, and, you know, inflation can be either heaven or hell for the banks. And it was hell for the banks uh, in the 1970s. And frankly, in 1994, um, that was pretty hellish. Uh, banks had all sorts of losses on securities and derivatives and mismatches between their assets and liabilities. Uh, But I think in this scenario, I think it's in the direction of heaven. Uh, Banks have really paid a big price for the unusual low uh, level of interest rates. Uh, Their net interest margin over the past year showed the biggest decline in a century. And that's because while banks have spent a lot of money gathering deposits with branches and technology and service and everything else, they haven't earned much on those deposits, so now they can finally redeploy those deposits into potentially higher-yielding securities and, and hopefully loans. Let's talk about the big investment banks for a moment because we had – I mean, we, were, we weren't expecting trading to keep up with the same um, – at the same pace as last year this time. But we've had a number of CEOs, um, Jamie Dimon, I think Gorman also, saying that, you know – it's time to come back to earth. Are trading? Credit Suisse is dismantling their trading business, kind of unrelated reasons. But um, they have said that M and A may make up for some of the loss there. What's your view on on the big investment banks? Well, look from the trading side, um, nobody expected uh, the levels to be sustained at 2022 paces. In fact, going into the year, everybody said we expect 2019. And the way it's playing out is it's going to be somewhere between 2019 and 2020 uh, based on our forecast. So there's just no big surprises there. Um, And frankly, corporations front loaded a lot of their financing uh, earlier in the pandemic. And that's a good thing. And trading plays off of that. So less issuance, less trading. On the other hand, wow, 
mergers. I, I, this might have been missed by the market, but Jamie Dimon just said investment banking this quarter could be one of the best quarters they've ever seen. Um, so, you know, the likes of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. And if you think about it, take a step back. Every company and every industry globally is in some way rethinking their business model post-pandemic, given the acceleration or the second wave of digitization. Um, so, yeah, mergers are strong. That's likely to have legs. Trading, it's subsiding some, but that shouldn't be a big surprise. Mike, what's your top conviction bet right here? I know you've been focusing a lot on technology for these global banks, but what's the, what's the bet you're – what's the bank you're talking to most with your clients? Well, I, I don't like using the word debt. <laughs> um, Good point. It's a, it, it, it's a nuance um, because we spend a lot of hours dissecting the, the financial statements and dissecting what management has to say. And on both fronts, uh, Bank America really is surprising. I, I thought that the CEO of Bank America should have been fired um, a little less than a decade ago. I went to their shareholder meetings. I spoke up. They weren't always happy about that, but, you know, that's what the facts said to me at the time. That never stopped now you before. <laughs> but now, as the facts change, so do our conclusions. And now I think the CEO of Bank America, Brian Moynihan, is really one of the best. Um, and it's really remarkable how he's grown into that position. And they're, you know, they start off saying responsible growth. Everybody at the company knows responsible growth. And at first, I thought it was an empty platitude. It didn't mean much at the beginning, but now it means... a a great deal, not just to have earnings grow sustainably by not being in the, the most risky segments. Remember, they bought countrywide and have all, all the mortgage problems, but it also means responsible to you know their, their customers and their employees and their communities. And you know, they're out front and center saying we're going to pay a $25 minimum wage by 2025. Uh, the, Brian Moynihan's on the Sunday talk shows talking about cybersecurity. So what you have here is both um, strategically positioned much better than before. Financially, they benefit from higher interest rates three times more than the average bank. And then just from a, you know, tone of society, uh, they're, they're right on top of it. So Bank America is yep. the name that we've been going with. And they're also one of the best fintech players in the world. By the way, I was talking to uh, David Rosenberg this morning and Rosie said something along the lines of when the housing bubble bursts. Now, <clears throat> uh, there, there will be people arguing that we're seeing that we're witnessing a housing bubble right now. But you got to admit, it's red hot, this market. How important is that um, and, and how dangerous is that to the big banks? Well, I think what's interesting here is just the degree of collateral that banks have. So, you know, when banks have a big crisis, they don't normally repeat the same problems in the next crisis, right? So the, the, the type of underwriting for homes, the type of people who get those loans, the collateral behind that. I mean, you, you, you know, you know, I lived through the global financial crisis and saw how crazy it was. I mean, everyone from, you know, kids to dogs to deceased people got applications. <laughs> that, that's real, right? Yep. Florida um, strippers so, with five condos. You, 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 Exactly. And and the crazy thing is, you know, people were like getting credit without everyone else knowing what kind of credit they were getting. It was, it was a mess. So the, the banking industry is cleaned up. By the way, if there's, if there's risk, it's, remember, banks provide less than one third of all 
uh, loans uh, in our economy. So if there's risk, it's some of these non-bank players out there. So when it comes to housing, I think that's fine. I think, you know, areas to watch continue to be uh, commercial real estate, uh, offices. Uh, that's not a new phenomenon, but it's, it's still something worth noting. And look, I, I do go back to interest rates, though. I mean, it could be, you know, heaven or hell. And, you know, hell comes in two forms. If you have deflation like Japan, and that's what, it, you know, the Fed and everybody was worried about for a number of years. But there is still tail risk uh, for hell if rates get out of control. And this is something uh, we had a bank conference last month, and this is something that investors were talking about more than I had heard in like maybe over a decade or two. And, and um, so that's the sort of tail risk. And if rates went up too much too quickly, then you could have credit uh, issues because then the interest costs for borrowers would go higher. So, Mike, you've been covering these banks for decades. Can they earn the returns they earned before the financial crisis, or is the, or is the industry just fundamentally change on a, on a secular basis? Well, yes and no. Um, we don't have their traditional banking revenues, their traditional banking margins getting back to where they were pre-pandemic uh, for a, a few more years. And that's just the nature of low rates. And, and frankly, you could say banks benefited from some of the government programs, but they also got hurt a lot by the, the low level rates. On the other hand, we think banks are making up the difference by improving efficiency, by lowering unit costs, by you know, embracing the tech revolution. And you know what? I went to a tech conference as a bank analyst. What was I doing there? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't understand 99% of what I heard, the jargon. It was, it was kind of crazy. But the 1% that I did take away was my aha moment. My aha moment was, look at all these other industries that have implemented tech, you know, whether it's retail or healthcare or, or pick your industry. They've already had their transformation. And so now banks are on the cusp of doing what's already been done elsewhere. So you're not, it's not like you're reinventing the wheel. You're just applying what's already been tried and true elsewhere. So when uh, you know, the CEO of Microsoft, uh, Satya, talks about the second wave of the digital transformation, well, banks are about to jump on board uh, on that. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure talking to you. Um, I wish we could spend more time. We could talk to you for an hour. Uh, maybe someday we'll do that. Mike Mayo, um, they are talking to us about the banks. And as we've said, he's probably one of the most uh, well-known banking analysts in uh, in the U.S., if not the world. Um, there, uh, He is the U.S. Large Cap Bank Research Director, Managing Director at Wells Fargo Securities. Now I want to bring in... David Dietz right now. He is managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at PPAC, private wealth management. They have just under $10 billion in assets under management. And I'll, I'll first, David, ask your take on Jay Powell's performance yesterday. How, how do you think he handled, well, no real moves, but kind of a, 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 a little bit of a more hawkish tone? Uh, yeah, I think he did a good job. Uh, obviously, it did catch the market a little bit by surprise, and you never want to catch the market by surprise. You always want to ease into things. I think they were just a little bit more 
hawkish than they were just several months ago by, um, you know, pulling forward the potential date of the first rate hike, at least as reflected in that dot plot. And, of course, you know, talking about that the next conversation is going to be on the tapering. And I think that caught people by surprise. I think from my perspective, what was most interesting is the big reason for going slow on normalizing monetary policy is the trying to figure out whether inflation is transitory or permanent. We don't have enough information. The Fed doesn't have enough information to make that decision now. So why are they getting a little bit more hawkish? I think the real reason is it always goes back to the pandemic. The pandemic is receding. This economy is on track. And ultimately, if the economy gets to be normalized, then interest rates have to get normalized, and that's what they're looking at. Um, but it did catch people by surprise. All right, David, given that background here, did your view of the market or where do you want to be allocated within these markets, did that change much yesterday? You know, no. Um, uh, you know, we look at the economy and the data and what history tells us is the most likely path forward, not we're not going to base anything based on one meeting by the Federal Reserve. Obviously, this meeting was different than the meeting back in March, so that can change. Um, I think it's clear that the most important factor out there is that pandemic is receding. Obviously, there are concerns about variants and so forth. Overseas, not doing quite as well, but I think the direction is very, very positive. We're seeing um, uh, the only thing that's lagging here a little bit is the, the labor market, but there are good reasons that have nothing to do with the economy, really, as to why that's lagging. Uh, obviously, there's some incentives to keep collecting benefits. There's lack of child care. There's some fear of COVID in the workplace. I think all that will get resolved positively. So I think we've got a strong economy uh, going forward, and I want to position uh, portfolios to take advantage of that. How do you best position them to do so? Well, if the economy is getting better, I think you want uh, your portfolio to be filled with investments that uh, will respond to that. In other words, a slight cyclical tilt. Unless everyone um, else has done so already, David, right? Because you don't want to do that if the prices are too high. Yeah, I, I, I think people who own material stocks, who own financial services stocks, who own energy stocks, uh, who own most cyclical stocks don't feel we're at the peak. Um, so I think there is more to go uh, in the economy. And, uh, uh, for example, uh, financial institutions are, are trading at, at valuations relative to book value and relative to earnings. It's much lower than historically has been the case. So that kind of goes to the question I've had, David, and, and given your experience and perspective, I suspect you're going to have an opinion here. But as we think about these cyclical stocks, which have traded so well really since uh, last September, that cyclical trade has really been a great rotation trade for a lot of investors. How long do you think that can go on? Like how much legs does that type of trade have on as opposed to just buying Amazon and Apple and, and you know looking at it maybe 10 years from now? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. You know, one answer is, well, how long did the tech growth stock trade trump the value trade? Um, uh, almost a decade, probably. Yep. And But if you look back for 100 years, they're kind of neck and neck, maybe a slight actual edge to value. Second, of course, is I think you want to look at interest rates to explain what's going on today and where things may lie. You know, we, what's interesting today is the interest rates are coming back down. Is 1.51% where we expect 
the 10-year Treasury to be when the dust settles and we have a normal economy, I think that is highly unlikely. Uh, in 2019, we saw the 10-year at 2.9. So by many metrics, um, businesses are seeing even more business than they saw pre-pandemic in 2019. So why wouldn't that, uh, why wouldn't that 10-year Treasury go back up to 2.9? And if that's the case, what are going to be the aspects of the economy that are going to respond? Well, you've got to start with financials. Their most important products is loans. And if the interest rate's going to go up one to one and a half percent more from here, I think that positions them quite well. Do you expect dollar strength now against, for example, the euro and the pound? Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just asking, David, because a lot of people have been investing in European equities, saying, "Look, their their reopening is to come, so they are going to get that growth push that the U.S. got a couple months ago." So, uh, I, I think that the uh, dollar is not going to strengthen uh, dramatically. Here's why. I think overseas uh, are lagging relative to what we've done. And as they ultimately get the pandemic as well under control as we have, I think their economies will respond. Their currencies uh, will get better. Ultimately, of course, I think that uh, although we should normalize interest rates, and they talked a good game yesterday, there's going to be just tremendous pressure. Even though they're independent, there's going to be political pressure to let things grow, to keep the party going to keep the punch ball out longer, that's not going to be uh, a boon to the dollar. And so, therefore, um, I I think the dollar will weaken ultimately. All right, David, thanks so much uh, for joining us. As always, we love getting your perspective. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Manager at PPAC Private Wealth Management, located in beautiful downtown Summit, New Jersey, which, by the way, Matt, has a hopping outdoor dining scene, particularly on Thursday nights. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.